How about that band, right? Yeah. So good. It really, uh, yeah, it really does bless me to see uh, young people to use their uh, gifts for the Lord. I think it's really good for us. Yeah. Again. Um, so that is, uh, that's Josh and Andrea, and uh, I got to know them a little bit this past summer. I was blessed to be part of a, a book club uh, with them, and, and, you know, them and um, some other of the young people we had here. It's a really insightful bunch, uh, and I was really just blessed to get to know them. And, of course, then there's Devin. He's okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, no, I, I cherish my friendship with Devin as well. Um, today, um, our, our passage is Acts chapter 15, and we'll be starting in verse 36. And Aaron mentioned before, we, we did get into a bit of the uh, schism between Paul and Barnabas last week. We're going to recover it again today, a, a bit of a different angle, uh, but then we'll go on from there. So Luke, or sorry, Acts, <laughs> it was written by Luke. Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and, did, and had not continued with them in the work. So they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas, and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. He came to Derbe, and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. I had an engineer friend who once told me about a trip he took to Chicago. And through a connection, he was able to get a special tour of Willis Tower. Willis Tower was once known as Sears Tower and was at one time the tallest building in the world. And through the special connection and through this tour, he had access to parts of the building that were not open to the public. For example, the very rooftop, the very top of the building. And his guide invited him to take a look over the edge, and, and there's no fences, there's no guardrails or anything like that. So my friend says, I got about four feet from the edge and did one of these, like, kind of things, like, that's close enough. But he told me something else interesting in that conversation that I didn't know, and that is that Willis Tower actually sways a little bit. On an average day, it sways up to six inches in either direction, but it's designed to sway up to three feet. And on really windy days, there's actually videos you can watch online where uh, on the inside, if somebody keeps their door open, <laughs> their door will kind of open and close with the rhythm of the building. 
And it was intentionally designed this way with this kind of bend but don't break philosophy because the designers thought that you know, because of the winds coming off of Lake Michigan, Chicago is the windy city after all, that over time, if they made it too rigid, the wind could do structural damage. But because it sways, because it gives a little bit, everything remains intact. So in one sense, Willis Tower is firm. I mean, try to push it over. But in another sense, Willis Tower is appropriately flexible. And in the same way, I think there are aspects within the Christian life where we too need to be both firm and flexible. We need to be firm when it comes to the truth. Truth such as there is a such thing as truth. It's interesting that that's even a debate. Firm on the truth that God clearly reveals about himself and humanity and the sanctity of life. Truth about the gospel. Truth about the essential doctrines of the Christian faith, such as the divinity of Jesus and his bodily resurrection from the dead. If anyone denies those, there is in no sense of the word that someone can call themselves a Christian. We want to also stand firm on the clear moral teachings, the moral commands of God. And yet there are other things where we need to be a bit more flexible. Things that are not essential doctrines, things that don't make or break Christianity, things that you know, aren't hills to die on, that Christians have different understandings and interpretations about. Things such as the age of the earth. Things such as what is the exact nature of how God's sovereignty interacts with human freedom. Things like what are the exact details of the return of Christ and what are the things that are going to happen in the last days at the end of this age. There's, there's plenty of room there that, for different Christian beliefs, so we need to be a bit flexible there. Um, I think... Summarizing Augustine, he said that in the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. But there are other things, like just within life, that Christians are going to have um, differences in, not so much doctrinally perhaps, but what Paul calls disputable matters. And Mike gave the example last week that Paul often gives. Uh, he gives this in Romans as well as 1 Corinthians. The question was, can Christians eat meat of animals that were sacrificed to idols? And Paul's answer was, it depends. If you can do so with a clear conscience, because we know that idols aren't a thing in this world, if you can do it with a clear conscience, by all means, go right ahead. It's just meat. But perhaps you come from a background, a pagan background, and, and you have associations there, and you feel like it might be wrong for you to do so. You can't do it with a clear conscience. Then you need to abstain. Because even though it might be not be wrong in of itself, if you think it's wrong, you're, you're, you're messing with your own conscience. So that way, when you're faced with something that actually is wrong, your conscience isn't going to do its function. And so today, we have 
various disputable matters among Christians, such as, can Christians consume alcohol? The answer, it depends. Of course, the Bible forbids all-out drunkenness, but if you have a clear conscience about it, Christians have the liberty to enjoy a glass of wine. But there are others. You don't have a clear conscience about it, so it's best for you to abstain. Same with what we're going to do this very night on October 31st. Some Christians are perfectly fine with the idea of going trick-or-treating. For them, it's experiencing this piece of Americana, so they'll dress their kids like Captain America to go to their neighbor's house to get a bag of Skittles that was not sacrificed to idols. <laughs> and, and, and that's all it is. Others, they have certain reservations about it. But we need to be flexible. Same with the question of you know, uh, education, public school, private school, homeschool. Each Christian family has to make that decision for themselves, but not act like they have the answer for every Christian family. We need to be flexible. And in this section in Acts chapter 15 and 16, we see both instances where uh, there were times of firmness and flexibility. For example, earlier in Acts 15, we have this Jerusalem council. They were dealing with the question, do Gentiles need to become Jewish and bear the marks of being a Jew in order to become a Christian? And thankfully, the Jerusalem council was firm in saying, no, it is essential that we do not add to the gospel. But coming out of that, and it's a bit ironic since this consensus, this unity was you know, reached painstakingly, but what happens after that is a bit of sharp contrast to that because we have these two friends, Paul and Barnabas, have this disunity among them. I want us to consider the nature of the relationship of Paul and Barnabas. Soon after his conversion, Paul went to Jerusalem and the leaders, the, the Christians, the believers in Jerusalem weren't sure what to think of him. I mean, this guy was just throwing people like us in jail. But he had someone advocating for him, someone who vouched for him, someone who stuck his neck out for him. And that was a man whose name meant the son of encouragement, Barnabas. And so Paul and Barnabas were commissioned together as missionaries, and they went around and, and they saw God just do some incredible things. Many people come to faith in the gospel, but they also experienced trials together and experienced persecution together. Look, nothing will bind you to a person like suffering with them. Imagine how tightly the hearts of Paul and Barnabas were knit together. They were thick as thieves. So that makes what happened between them, it must have really hurt. Barnabas, Paul says, you know, let's go and visit the churches that we planted. Barnabas says, that's a great idea, why don't we take my cousin, John Mark? And it must have been that Barnabas and John Mark had a conversation where John Mark says, you know, I know I left you guys, and I don't like the way that that ended. I like another shot at that. I want to make it right. Barnabas proposes this to Paul, and Paul says, I don't think that's a good idea. And it escalated to this sharp disagreement between them. And the word 
in the Greek for sharp disagreement is where we get an English word paroxysm. I don't use the word paroxysm in my everyday vocabulary. But it means that this kind of violent outburst of emotion, this violent action, this, uh, it's, it's actually a medical term for convulsions. Um, it's, it was actually a word used elsewhere in the New Testament in that well-known 1 Corinthians 13 passage about love, where it says, love is not provoked. Love is not easily angered. So the sense of the word here indicates that this was no mere, let's just agree to disagree and I'll see you at Christmas. This was heated. Faces were made. Voices were raised. And of course, the natural question for us to think is, uh, well, so who was right? And I'm sure if we took a poll today, there'd be various opinions among even ourselves. But it seems that Luke's point is not to say who is right, but rather that there are gray areas in life where you sometimes have to make a judgment call. But neither man had an ironclad argument from Scripture. There were, there's no Scripture passage in Deuteronomy that says, if a young man abandons you in your journey, you must never take him back again. Or take him back after two years. There's, there's nothing like that. But you could argue that perhaps both men were, argue, or were arguing from biblical principle. Paul, considering the words of Jesus, perhaps he had the oral tradition where Jesus says, no one who puts the hand to the plow but turns away is worthy of the kingdom of God. And Paul recognized that missionary gospel life requires full commitment and perhaps Barnabas says, well, I agree with you, Paul, but what about our friend Peter? Did Peter not deny Jesus in his hour of greatest need? And when Jesus came from the dead and recommissioned him, Peter didn't need to re-earn Jesus' trust. So if Peter, why not John Mark? Now, I'm not going to pretend to know exactly how the conversation went on from there, but we can use our imaginations. Perhaps Paul had in mind what he describes in Galatians chapter 2, this time at Antioch, when men came from James, and all of a sudden people like Peter, who were once having table fellowship with Gentiles, suddenly pulled away. And Paul says, even Barnabas, Barnabas who thinks the best of everyone, even he was led astray. So maybe Paul had something in mind like, you know, Barnabas, ever since Antioch, I'm not sure that I've been able to trust your judgment. To which Barnabas could have replied, well, it's a good thing that the leaders in Jerusalem trusted my judgment about you when I stuck my neck out for you. I'm advocating for John Mark the same way I advocated for you. Will you not extend the benefits that you were given? But neither has an airtight argument. Sometimes it's gray. And sometimes, even though we know that there is no exact right, we still think that we're right. And so we bring our personalities, our priorities, our preferences. I didn't mean to alliterate there. Um, 
<laughs> Perhaps we privilege our giftings. Paul, as an apostle and evangelist, said that it is very important to reach people with the gospel, and we can't have this as a potential distraction. Perhaps Barnabas, as a shepherd, said that, no, the growth of a disciple is important as well. Those things don't have to be mutually exclusive. So they separate. The thing is, though, was whether or not they took John Mark the, at an essential level, was the gospel at stake? No, they had liberty to do either one. Take them, that's fine. Leave them, that's fine. But both men stood firm where they could have been flexible. Either one of them. Barnabas could have said to Paul, like, look, Paul, I cherish your friendship and your, and your partnership in the gospel so much that even though I, disagree, I disagree with you here, we'll do it your way. Perhaps we can consider it for the future. Likewise, Paul could have said, Barn, that's his Andy Griffiths there. Barn, I disagree with you, but I cherish your friendship and our partnership in the gospel so much that if this is a make or break for you, we'll do it your way. But I expect you to keep a close eye on him. They stood firm where they could have been flexible. And now I'm not saying that um, every argument we have in our lives, you know, that, that only the essentials are worth arguing about. Other things are important too. But I do wonder within our lives, if we really looked at our priorities within the arguments that we get into, do we maybe stand a little bit too firm? I wonder if this is best exposed during, you know, wedding plans. Do we stand a little bit too firm on what the napkin rings at the reception look like? Where we should be striving for unity, do we stand on too firm on types of things? I remember when my wife and I were engaged, we were driving to our engagement pictures, and we had an argument about the music that would be playing during our photo slideshow before the wedding. And so we arrive, and the photographer was a friend of ours, and she's like, are you guys okay? And looking back at that now, I don't know, what were we even fighting about? Well, we don't fight over ridiculous things anymore, I, I'll have you know. We, we, and I know that you guys don't either. We don't fight over ridiculous things. We've, we've grown. Oh, yeah, no. Again, but just think about our priorities. Where do we stand too firm, and where can we be flexible? Ask God, are my priorities your priorities? Are, are my preferences your preferences, or am I putting too much weight on this thing? But even though there was this split, God was not in his heavens going, oh no, Paul and Barnabas are splitting up. Whatever shall I do? I need to think of a plan B. No, 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 no. God works right through it. Because what man meant for division God meant for a multiplication. 
One group of two has become two groups of two. He has expanded his mission. Barnabas took John Mark to Cyprus. Paul took Silas to the region of Galatia. And sometimes this happens. An example of this is even like church splits. And usually when churches split, it's not over the essentials. But they split. And, and sometimes God uses that. One gospel community becomes two within a town. Um, I've, I'm told that this is very common in Africa and Latin America. That that's one of the drivers of the spread of Christianity in those areas. But the thing is, is that even though God uses it, should we seek to be divisive? No, I don't think so. But what that shows is God's grace to work in spite of us and his power to do so. But another, like just, another point of the fingerprint of God in this is where he leads Paul, you know, going in the other direction of Barnabas, Barnabas going southwest, Paul going northwest, is that he lands in Derby and Lystra. Earlier this month, I preached of uh, Paul's previous time in Lystra, and let's just say it didn't really end well. He ended up having large rocks thrown at him and being left for dead. And we could look at that, and I don't think by our measures that that would be considered very successful. But here, Paul encounters a young man named Timothy. And, you know, some commentators speculate that Timothy and Timothy's family came to the Lord because of Paul's previous trip to Lystra. And so Paul is now seeing the fruit of a trip that felt that it wasn't very successful. But then we see here Paul perhaps looking for a new teammate, Silas replacing Barnabas, Timothy replacing John Mark. Timothy you know, fits the bill of a, a young man who could replace John Mark. And consider how that probably wouldn't have happened had Paul and Barnabas and John Mark had all gone off together and continued their mission. Perhaps Paul wouldn't have been looking for a new ministry partner. Perhaps Paul wouldn't have even gone in that direction. But you know what? Because that happened, Paul and Timothy have this relationship, and even we benefit from that because part of our scriptures are some of Paul's letters to Timothy. You think about that? Even we benefit from the schism between Paul and Barnabas. Only God can make something out of that. Here's the thing with Timothy. Timothy was well-respected in both his town of Lystra and even Iconium, some 20, 30 miles away. His faith must have been the kind of lived-out faith that people can see. But the scripture tells us that Timothy's mother was a Christian believer, but ethnically she was Jewish. But his father was Greek. The language seems to indicate here that at this time, perhaps Timothy's father was, was dead. But it seems that perhaps that around the time that Timothy was born, Timothy's father had a say in just how Jewish this kid would be. For Timothy did not bear the mark of being a Jew. He was not circumcised. But we are told that Paul goes and takes Timothy and has him circumcised. And this is a part of this passage where our eyebrows can lower and we can think, what? 
Why? Because after all, wasn't Acts 15 all about how this kind of thing isn't necessary? Isn't it that in Galatians 2, Paul writes of how it is not necessary and even how Paul didn't take a guy like Titus and go have him circumcised. So if not Titus, why Timothy? Here's the thing. This was not about Timothy's salvation. It was about missional strategy. It says Paul did this because of the Jews in the area. So imagine the conversation. <laughs> A hard conversation. Look, Tim, you're a remarkable young man. And I would really love to have you on my team. I think you'd be a great asset. But here's the thing. The Jews in this area, and I mean, because you know my custom is to go from town to town and go to the synagogues first, right? But the Jews in this area, they know about your daddy. And they may be wondering exactly how Jewish is this kid. And there's only one thing we can do to put their minds at ease. And if we don't do this, they won't hear a word that I say about the gospel. We might not even get a foot in the synagogues. You will be such a distraction, you will be offensive to them. So we need to be flexible. This is Mike's illustration. Mike says, you know, imagine that he goes back to England and starts speaking in an American accent and doing things real American-like. And he goes and teaches at a conference and people there know about him are like, wouldn't you think they'd be a little put off by that? Him being something that he isn't? They won't hear a word that he says. So we need to be flexible and accommodating where appropriate. Something like, if you want to take the gospel to Japan, the thing you need to know about Japan is that when you enter a house, you need to take your shoes off. Imagine waltzing right into a house without taking your shoes off and starting to preach the gospel. They're not going to hear a word that you say. They'll be staring at your feet. That is, if you get more than three steps in the house without them kicking you out. So we need to be flexible and accommodating where appropriate. It... It makes me think of a man named Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a 19th century English missionary who spent a lot of time in uh, China. And like many missionaries, his first few years were a struggle, not all that terribly successful. But I think he begins to speculate that some of his European trappings, his English ways were a bit off-putting to the Chinese. He wore a long black overcoat, and so they called him the Black Devil. So he decided to start, you know, experimenting with dressing like a Chinese man, even changing his hairstyle to where he shaved his forehead and the sides of his hair, uh, and then grew his hair long to wear it in one braid like the Chinese men would. And some of his fellow European missionaries critiqued him for this, as well as some Chinese people. But his son and his daughter-in-law wrote in his biography, this opened up so many doors for him. 
he was able to get into way more houses than he was before. The women and children were no longer afraid of him. There was a lot less noise and commotion when he would, when he would preach. It was like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, I have become all things to all men that I might reach some. I've learned to accommodate, to be, to be flexible. To, like The gospel is offensive enough, so to remove any of those other offen- potentially offensive things where appropriate. Now, we need to be clear. There's a difference between cultural flexibility and moral flexibility. Paul did not say, I have become a gossip so that I might win gossips. I've become a drunkard, so I might win drunkards. And so a biblical Christian church cannot affirm ideas, behaviors, lifestyles, and identities that the culture approves of, but that God does not. If there's any sense of the word that we are to be an affirming church, we affirm the inherent dignity and value of every person because people are made of the image of God. But that does not mean we can affirm everything that people do and believe. Now, there's another principle here. And that is that Paul recognizes that there was a difference, a gap between himself and the Jews. And yet, with this gap, he found a bridge, but he didn't demand that they be the ones to cross it. Paul was the one who crossed that bridge to them by being flexible, by by accommodating. Now look, if this was a group of Jewish Christians demanding circumcision, Paul would have said, get lost, you guys should know better. But since these were Jews without the gospel, he found it appropriate to flex. But he was the one who built the bridge and to cross it. And so Paul was often doing this. He was always aware of his audience. When he would speak to the Jews, he would enter the synagogues and he would reason with them from the scriptures about the Messiah because that was their frame of reference. However, as we'll read in a few weeks in Acts chapter 17, when Paul goes to Athens, talking to the Athenians, talking to the philosophers, he doesn't whip out the old synagogue slideshow and say, open up the scroll of Isaiah because we're going to talk about Messiah. The people in Athens had no categories for those kind of things. Isaiah or Messiah, what is he talking about? But he flexed in using what they already understood. Their statues, their temples, their poets. In fact, he affirmed some of these things. Like, look, you have this statue to the unknown God. Well, it's good that you recognize that you you are missing something. Let me connect the dots for you. And your poets have said some interesting and true things, but, but let me get you all the way there. He knew he flexed to his audience, not changing the core of the message, but adapting it so that they could hear it and understand it. So Chuck Colson, the late Chuck Colson, tells a story about how one time a well-known media figure 
uh, he didn't name him, but he says, let's call him Tom. And he says, Tom invited me to dinner. He says, Tom says, well, I don't believe in God, but I want to know what you believe. And so Colson begins to share his testimony, how at one time he was part of Richard Nixon's inner circle and how he got caught up in the Watergate scandal and served jail time, but then in prison became a Christian and started a ministry. But Tom says, I've heard all that before. I, I know your story. But I have a friend, she's part of the New Age movement, and she has crystals. And crystals work for her, just kind of like you're Jesus. He works for you, right? And Chuck's like, no, 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 no. Jesus was a historical person. So he went into all these kind of apologetics showing the historicity of the, the, the Bible and the, the historicity of the, the existence of Jesus, but Tom doesn't find any of these very compelling, just whatever. So as he's fumbling around with his fork, Colson gets an idea. He says, have you ever seen the movie Crimes and Misdemeanors? And Tom had, and he enjoyed it very much. It's a Woody Allen film about a doctor who's wrestling with guilt because he hired a hitman to take somebody out. But and so he's dealing with this because he had a Jewish father who told him that in the end, God will bring about justice. But by the end of the movie, this doctor suppressed his conscience so much and told himself that life is just some Darwinian struggle where only the ruthless survive. And so Colson asked Tom, is that our only options? To be tormented by our guilt or to get rid of it by killing our conscience. He finally had Tom's attention. And from there, he showed from the book of Romans how we can't run away from our conscience, but then told us how we can deal with it. And so let me ask you this. If Colson led off with the book of Romans, do you think Tom would have listened to him at all? Probably not. Probably would have been like throwing seeds at the hard ground. But what he did by being flexible and finding that point of contact, it's like he, he was breaking up the ground and preparing the soil for those seeds to be planted. That's crossing the bridge, that's being flexible. Now I'm sure there's all sorts of ways we can um, think through this and adapt to this. There, there, there's a lot of them, more than we can talk about today. But I, I wonder, I read an article about this, and so here's an idea. I want to talk about tattoos. Another disputable matter among Christians. Some of us have them, some of us like them, others have our reservations. But my point here isn't to talk about whether you should or shouldn't get one. My point here is people have them, why not use them? Why not start conversations? Because most people get tattoos based on something significant to them. Sure, there's the occasional regret of spring break 1999. <laughs> but most people get something that's significant to them, and it's part of their story. So you say to someone, regardless of your feelings on tattoos, you go up to someone and say, like, oh, that's, very, that's some very interesting artwork you have there. What can you tell me about it? Why is it significant to you? 
And it's likely they'll tell you something about their story, their experiences, their, their hopes, their dreams, their trials, their hurts. Some people get tattoos in memoriam to a loved one who has passed. You can say, I've lost somebody too. Death is horrible, isn't it? Can I tell you what gives me hope? I know someone who's conquered death. Now, it's not always that neat and tidy or quick, but that's your in. And we do this, we're flexible for the sake of the gospel. That's why Paul did it. That's why Paul became all things to all men. That's why Paul became under the law to those who were under the law. It was for the gospel. The gospel that Jesus did not stand at the end of a bridge with his arms folded, expecting us to be the ones to cross. Jesus was flexible and he was the one who crossed the bridge to get to us. Jesus left a heavenly culture to become part of an earthly culture and to adapt to that earthly culture. Jesus was born under the law to redeem those under the law. And Jesus shows incredible flexibility in this. He took on a human body with all of its frailty and weakness. You think what Timothy did was radical? Jesus has him beat. Jesus took on a body to become killable. And as he died, took the power of sin to the grave and conquered it by rising from the dead on the third day so that all who trust in him, their future is resurrection. And Timothy said, that is such good news that I am willing to give up some of my comfort so that others can hear it. So how do you respond to that message today? What is your response? Do you find yourself in a group of friends and you find yourself compromising in areas where you need to stand more firm? Or perhaps you notice that sometimes you are front-loading your preferences and your priorities, and perhaps you need to be a bit more flexible. Is it that you have a heart to reach the lost and you, and you want God to give you the creativity, the wisdom, the discernment, and, and, and the boldness to learn how to cross that bridge? Or is it that you see the commitment of Timothy and it humbles you? And you recognize that you've been lulled by comfort. And Jesus is calling you to more. If that's any of you today, we just invite you to come and pray and to be prayed for. So as the band plays, feel free to come and talk to the one who crossed the bridge for us.